Hello, I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Yonit. How are you doing this week? I'm okay. You know, last week uh, when we discussed um, the book Jews Don't Count with David Badil and that whole blind spot many people have and that they don't see Jews as a minority and definitely not as a persecuted minority... Um, so maybe it's naive of me to think that those people received a rather rude awakening uh, with the hostage situation in Colleyville, uh, Texas on Saturday. Um, we talk a lot, you and me, about the rift between diaspora and Israel. I do have to tell you that when this the news was trickling in and we realized what was happening, and this was Saturday, 10.30 p.m. in Israel, all three networks uh, broke their original programming and went to the live uh, reporting from uh, a special bulletin and a live reporting from from Colleyville, Texas. That's interesting and important, actually, the idea that there is peoplehood in a situation like that. There is a connection. Uh, it was certainly the case that Jews around the world were doing the same, I think. And uh, thinking of, you know, if they had had been in synagogue that day or even if they hadn't, thinking of their own rituals. This has been a big sort of introduction again. Uh, I say introduction, it's happened so many times, but yet again, Jews are explaining either to friends or to people on social media that this is what it's like. You are checking the doors and the exits and security as you go in. It was um, one of those real jolts to the system. So we are going to be talking about that for a big chunk of this edition of Unholy. And we do have uh, a very uh, uh, valued guest joining us for uh, for that conversation. So we'll be getting into that. Uh, the the I mean, my eye was caught, but you know, because there's always a other life going on, and my eye was caught by this intriguing little tweet from Dan Shapiro, who is the former American ambassador to Israel, playing a bit of a Twitter game, which I think you've been playing too, Yoni. <laughs> well, yeah, it started out, he was actually retweeting this. Uh, it started out with a tweet from Eric Anderson of, of awardswatch.com. And he wrote this, the highest grossing movie from your birth year is how your 2022 will play out. Or to make it pretty clear if you're the highest grossing movie the year you were born was Titanic, you're probably not going to have a great 2022. Uh, Dan <laughs> Shapiro, the tweet we both noticed was uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That was the movie that was the highest grossest when he was born. And he said, I'm probably coming out, going out with, in a blaze of glory. <laughs> so I did some deep research on this, my friend. And I must tell you that the highest grossest film, the year you were born, is The Graduate which I don't know what that means if I hear 2022. You're coming know, of age, you're growing up. I don't know what's going to happen to you. Uh, many like, strange adventures. I like the idea of highest grossest, because in a way it is a gross thought <laughs> that this is the year. I mean, I was going to make a joke about having an affair with an older woman. I mean, you get to my age in life, you'll need, where that becomes <laughs> less and less likely. Um, well, let me no, save you. Do you want me to on, save, save you me, by telling you I don't know how to read this. highest grossing film uh, second highest your year is uh, is the Jungle Book. I think that See, makes for a better 2022 for you, right? I am so much more comfortable with that because <laughs> then what am I going to? It's a year of prickly pears and poor paws bears. and bears and uh, and making fire and um, being king of the jungle. I was about to say king of the swingers, but then we're back into graduate territory, so I'm going to avoid that. But yes, living we hope not living only on the bare necessities, but no, I'm more comfortable with the second best. So go on, let's, uh, let's talk, play this game, well, spin the wheel. Which is, is the grossing, highest grossing what? film for your year? Mine is awesome. 
Mine is really awesome. I mean, I just, I don't want to, you know, show off too much. It's Star Wars. What can be better than Star Wars being the sort of, you know, preceding what your year is going to look like in 2022? I'm going to save the galaxy. I'm going to meet Harrison Ford. All good. (laughs) Only problem I have with this is that I will discover my real father is evil, which I'm, you know, I don't like that so much because I really like my current father. But, you know, if I have to sacrifice things for the galaxy, I'll do that. So yeah, okay. a big imperial conflict um, with a princess. I think it's perfect. I think so. Um, I, think so. I think it's perfect. Um, so, yes, do play the game and find out your uh, the big grossing film of your year. Uh, and hopefully it won't involve dark subplots and storylines. Um, or dinosaurs. So that or, or or dinosaurs, yes. Some somebody is going to have Jurassic Park, aren't they? But they again, all these people are much younger than me. That's essentially what you're saying. Um, so that is going to uh, that uh, keep us all busy. We're also going to talk about the deal um, that you're going to tell us all about, involving a man who comes up very often on this podcast, namely. Yep, Benjamin Netanyahu. We're going to talk about what we dubbed the deal of the century. Is that happening or not happening? We're going to talk about that later in our program. But we begin with the incident last Saturday morning, last Shabbat in Coleyville, Texas. Uh, a hostage standoff happened at the synagogue congregation Beth Israel in Coleyville, just west of Dallas. A man turned up at the synagogue, was let in. There's talk that he was offered tea by um, the uh, community there. What ensued was a 10-hour siege. Four congregants were held hostage. One was released After six hours, eventually the other three, including the rabbi of the community, got away. And the man who'd held them hostage, identified by the FBI as Malik Faisal Akram, a 44-year-old British citizen, uh, was found dead uh, at the scene. The Jewish Chronicle newspaper uh, here in London got hold of extraordinary recording of the hostage taker, Malik Faisal Akram, phoning home and speaking to his brother. It's a long recording, some of it very distressing, but we should probably just hear a little bit of it. Yeah, I'm in America, yeah, I thought I'll just kiss my last goodbye to you, I'm surrounded by all mommy, right? Right? I'm in a synagogue, I've got four beautiful guys, Jewish guys with me, right? They're trying to play ball with me. I'm bombed up, I've got every ammunition, I've only been here two weeks, right? I've got them all at gunpoint. And then in the days that have followed, there's been huge attention on the rabbi, uh, Charlie Citron Walker, uh, and he made these remarks afterwards, which have been widely shared. And once you hear them, you can hear why. How amazing is it for us to know that we have the support of the broader community, that our small congregation in Colleyville, Texas, which no one has ever heard of before, <laughs> But we know how special it is, and that our broader community, and that our broader world desperately wants to support us on this journey. It will take time, but slowly we will heal. So those are the words of Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker. And it's fair to say, I think this event in Texas last weekend has really exercised and preyed on the minds of Jews all around the world, Yonid. We are so pleased to have with us Rabbi Sharon Brous. She's one of the most influential rabbis in America. She's the senior uh, and founding rabbi of Ikar, which is a Jewish congregation in Los Angeles. She's an incredibly inspiring speaker, I have to say, as a someone who heard her up close. Uh, And her Hebrew can definitely trump mine any day of the week. Welcome, (sighs) Rabbi Sharon. Thank you so much for talking to us today. 
Thank you. I'm, I'm pleased to be with you. Uh, we're obviously talking uh, in the aftermath of the hostage standoff in uh, Colleyville, Texas. Can I ask you, firstly, this Shabbat, this coming Shabbat, what will be your sermon? What will you tell your community um, to try and make them feel more secure? I don't yet know how I'm going to frame this for my community on Shabbat. I'm generally a rabbi who doesn't know what I'm going to say <laughs> on Shabbat until uh, until Friday afternoon. Um, but I, I can tell you that this past Shabbat, my, my son became bar mitzvah, and we were in the midst of this incredibly beautiful, joyous celebration, albeit a COVID celebration, um, but really happy to be together and really grateful. And I keep struggling with what it means that my family and my community were in the midst of so much joy while this horror was unfolding in another synagogue uh, across the country. And I know that part of what we have learned to hold over the course of time and, and certainly over the course of generations is that it's all it's all real. The, the celebration and the grief, the joy, the, the light and the darkness, it's all part of one sacred mix of the human experience. And so... Um, that's certainly something that I've been thinking a lot about. I, my, my oldest daughter, Eva, became bat mitzvah a week after Donald Trump was elected president. Um, it was a time of incredible um, anxiety, grief, and sorrow for my, most American Jews. Um, and so we were holding that. My daughter, Sammy, became bat mitzvah a week after the shooting in Poway at the Chabad. And so we, we've learned over time to hold these difficult moments at the same time as we're holding our joy. We also are really holding the tension between keeping ourselves and our community safe and secure and also remaining open-hearted as, as a Jewish community, um, keeping our doors and our hearts open to the stranger, which we uh, obviously is a, a core and foundational religious commitment and at the very heart of what our Jewish community stands for. Just, and to, so just, I, I, just, I mean, just on that very practically, what, what actually does it involve to go to synagogue in America now? And I, I speak as someone sitting here in London where it has become utterly familiar and now barely noticeable. As a Jew, you don't notice it, but people who are new to going to synagogue really do notice it, that there is security, proper, serious security outside a synagogue that you have to go through before you get inside. Is that what it's like to get inside an American shul of a Shabbat morning? Well, it's very different than in Europe, in my experience. I'm always surprised when I'm in Europe and you have to essentially sign up in advance, have your name on the list, have a passport in order to enter if you're a guest. In the United States now, it's very, very common for there to be for there to be strong security in Jewish institutional spaces, in synagogues, Jewish schools, JCCs. Um, armed guards are a very common presence in synagogues. Uh, but you don't have to pre-register to come in. So in other words, it's it's open and it's closed. And in fact, one of the challenges that we have in America is that in a population where about 12 to 18 percent of the Jews in America are Jews of color, we have become very aware of the fact that different Jews feel safe uh, with different in, under different circumstances. So what we've learned is that um, white Jews overwhelmingly feel more safe when there's an increased presence of armed security guards, uh, armed and uniformed. We know that um, many Jews of color, black and brown Jews, often feel less safe when there's more uh, of a presence of armed and uniformed security guards. And so when you're really trying to build an inclusive community, you have to take into consideration all of those sensitivities. And so I, I think since the Pittsburgh shooting happened 
three years ago and then Poway six months later, we definitely saw a ramping up of security and in all Jewish establishments or most Jewish establishments. The question is how to hold that sensitively and how to remain an open, warm, inclusive, radically welcoming community when we actually have to have to uh, stop people at the door and make sure that they are unarmed before they enter into our spaces. You know, the amazing thing is about Texas, uh, um, Rabbi uh, Charlie uh, Citron Walker, he said he credited his survival to the active shooter training uh, and security courses that he and the congregation took. Obviously, California has different gun laws. But can you tell us if you took any of these, any courses or any sort of even explanations on what to do if this happens in your community? Well, we have invested a lot of time and thought into our security protocol Um, We haven't done active hostage training yet, but there is a lot of talk in the synagogue communities about active shooter trainings. Um, And thank God it seemed like the training that he had, it sounded like he had four different trainings for this, but it sounds like the training is actually what what helped them survive. And so a lot of this is um, learning how to communicate with other people who are under siege about staying calm and remaining a non-anxious presence in the face of really difficult circumstances. And those kinds of things are absolutely essential. And I think you're going to see in the course of the coming months that most synagogues in America are going to take these trainings if they haven't already. This has now become a frequent enough occurrence that you know journalists have a sort of template for these stories. There are writers who've said they've now written the same piece a half a dozen times because it's happened so often you know, you've talked about the training that's come about. This is not now a freak occurrence. And I just wonder, what's your sense of American Jews? Do they feel still that these are one-off events, freak events that are horrible, but that's all they are? Or is it beginning to change the way American Jews feel about America? And I'm struck by the your mention of Europe. You know, people have a sense of what it's like to be Jewish in Europe, given the history and so on. Are American Jews beginning to feel less safe, not from this or that attacker, but in the country they live in? I think since 2015, uh, you've seen many more Jews speaking about their fear and discomfort as anti-Semitism has been on the rise in this country. And there's no question. I mean, the number of hate crimes committed against Jews in America has been skyrocketing over the last several years. It was fueled from the highest offices. Um, It is very hard for me to square uh, Jewish Trump supporters who were completely willfully blind to the way that he was uh, feeding anti-Semitic tropes to the white nationalist community, which was responsible for driving much of the much of the rise in anti-Semitic Semitic, uh, violent actions in America over the last several years. Um, it, yeah, it, America has felt less safe for many Jews. And at the same time, we realize that um, that by and large in America, we're still we still have in- incredible freedom and privilege here. And uh, that sense of security has certainly been rattled. But I also want to say, I, I don't know if all, if you heard, the, there was one interview that Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker had where the interviewer asked him at the end, so the next time a stranger taps on the door when you're in Shabbat services, are you going to let him in? And he said, I have led thousands of Shabbat services. 
I have talked to many, many strangers over the years. This is one person who wanted to do us harm. By and large, living in America, we are overwhelmingly safe. Most people are not terrorists. And you, this, there's a mindset that we, that, that we have to consider here. Do you want to look at the world and see every person as a potential Nazi? Or do you want to live a, a, as a Jew Hold pride in your Jewish identity. Build multiracial and multi-faith alliances so that we're really rooted um, in, in cross-cultural connections and, and communications here. And, and work as hard as you can to try to build a safe and just society. And obviously, we are choosing the latter. It's a sad conversation that we're having uh, at the end of the day. We're talking about security and sense of security. We have to say that the person who crossed the ocean from England to the United States to this specific uh, uh, hostage standoff wasn't a, a Trump supporter. This is a different, maybe a different kind of anti-Semitism. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of Dara Horn's book of People mm -hmm. uh, Love Dead Jews. And she says there, when she asks herself, why is this scourge of anti-Semitism happening in America now? And her sad conclusion is that we are walking further away from World War II. We are walking, the further we are, we are getting from the Holocaust, the easier it is, again, for people to hate Jews wherever they come from. Is that a conclusion? Is that the sad conclusion that we need to arrive at? Well, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And you're right. This, this hostage situation was not driven by white nationalism. This mm -hmm. person was a Muslim extremist. And I think one of the things that's so confusing about anti-Semitism and why even anti-racism activists often don't understand and may even contribute to anti-Semitism is because they, they don't understand, many people don't understand that at the very heart of anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory that says that Jews control the banks, control government, control even the weather. And when you have escaped, I mean, this is, this is Nazi style ideology, by the way. I mean, this is straight out of European anti-Semitism. And when you have somebody who, or a people that are responsible for that much in the world, then certainly you can, you can pin the world's suffering on those people because it means that those people with the power haven't done enough to end your suffering. And that certainly doesn't appear only on the so-called right. It, it, it comes, uh, it comes really across the political spectrum. What I was saying earlier is that in most cases in America where there's been, where there have been violent acts of anti-Semitism, it has been fueled by the white nationalist movement and the growing mainstream dreaming of white nationalism in America, which is something we need to be incredibly concerned about. But it also obviously exists uh, on the left and exists in uh, in, in the spaces like the, those that fueled this, uh, this particular act of terror. And so I think we have to be very vigilant about anti-Semitism, especially on the left, especially in our movements for social justice. This is where most American Jews find their political home. And so it's not only personally hurtful, but it's also dangerous to us when anti-Semitism emerges in those spaces. And at the same time, we have to be very clear about anti-Semitism as a mechanism for sowing division and hatred in movements for justice, In uh, certainly in the United States. It has been that way for many years, and certainly that's the that, that's really the dominant form of anti-Semitism that I have in, encountered in the United States over the last several years. Uh, when you mentioned that um, the anti-Semitism that is is there in some cases on the left, that that interests me in this way, which is yes, there are these outlier events like this horrible incident in Texas, but sometimes when those things happen at the extreme end, 
There are also just a much lower level, a kind of almost white noise of social anti-Semitism. The remark, the casual, uh, dismissive or derogatory uh, aside. And one begins to notice that that temperature is rising. You know, is this a trend that we that you're picking up? I don't think so. I, I think again that uh, you know we have been living in a golden age for Jews in America um, over the course of the last you know seventy years or so. Certainly, in the course of the last five six years, we've seen an incredible, incredibly dangerous and notable uptick in anti-Semitic acts. But we we are we're very safe in this country. Most of us feel we're very safe in this country. We do feel like these attacks are outliers. They're scary. And in fact, the reason why the, these things are so notable is because they touch on um, they touch on core Jewish vulnerabilities. We are a people that was genocided in living memory. And so an attack on a synagogue on Shabbat morning strikes at our core vulnerabilities. In fact, there haven't been a lot of these attacks. There have been three, right? There, there was Texas, there was Pittsburgh, and there was Poway. That's terrible. There shouldn't have been any, but it's not, this is not an everyday occurrence, but it happens to touch our core trauma and our core vulnerability. This is something that I wish that our multi-faith allies would understand. It's very hard for a lot of people to look at the Jewish community and, and figure why we feel so vulnerable to anti-Semitic violence and anti-Semitic hatred when on the outside we seem to be doing just fine. It's important for us to hold perspective, to understand and recognize that by and large we are overwhelmingly safe in this place, in this time, and we also have to remain vigilant to the forces around us because the nature of anti-Semitism, of course, for those who study history, is that everything is fine and then in an instant your whole world turns upside down. And so that's the reason why we feel so vulnerable and so shaken by these individual actions. I also just want to add this, you know, distinctly American context, which is the Jews are not the only people who are victims of hate crimes in America. We're not the only ones who, throughout the Trump administration, faced increasing animosity toward us as vulnerable minority communities. And in, in fact, in some ways, we have many more resources than many of our other faith and racial community, faith, faith communities had uh, to respond to some of these attacks. And so this, this kind of vulnerability needs to lead us to be better allies with other people who are also increasingly victimized in an increasingly violent America. Rabbi Sharon Brass, I wish we had uh, next time we can talk about things that aren't anti-Semitism because there's so much more to hear from you. And we thank you so much for this conversation and for putting things in perspective for us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So good to be with both of you. Thank, thank you. you. Meanwhile, Yonit, we did say we were going to talk about Israel. And so often our conversation about Israel comes back to one individual. He's meant to be the former prime minister, and yet he's nothing former <laughs> about how often he is in our minds. What has happened with Bibi Netanyahu? Well, what has uh, been happening this week, Jonathan, is I think nothing less than an earthquake. The talk of a possible plea bargain in the Netanyahu case, you have to uh, realize that the Netanyahu case is actually three different corruption cases. The trial itself has been going on for a year and a half. The investigation for four years before that. So this has been so dominant in the news cycle for many years. 
it's created a political deadlock in four elections and, you know, probably I could say fortified the fault lines in Israeli society. So I don't know what we will report about <laughs> once this is over. But the deal, in short, uh, is designed to keep Netanyahu out of jail, but also keep him out of office. That is the most brief way I can explain what it is. Um, basically, uh, jail time will be downgraded to community service for six months. The most serious of the allegations of the charges, the bribery charge will be downgraded. One case will be essentially uh, erased, but Netanyahu will have to plead guilty to charges of fraud and breach of trust. And this is the most salient point. He will have to accept uh, the clause of moral turpitude, which we call kalon, which means he will not be able to be part of the political system in Israel. It will bar him from political life for seven years. For someone who's 72 years old, that basically uh, may well be that he is out of the political arena for good if he agrees to this deal. So you've added the if he agrees. Mm -hmm. I've got a whole lot of other ifs here, okay. which is, first of all, 79, and you think about, you know, Shimon Peres was still active <laughs> in politics until he was in his 90s. You've got Joe Biden there, who I think is mm -hmm. now has turned 79. Mm -hmm. You know, not it's not impossible. But the other thing is, if this holds, if he doesn't, as the great Houdini, find some little way, and this is the scenario I wanted to ask you, would this deal prohibit or prevent a Likud party or a Likud-led or dominated Knesset, even without Netanyahu in it, coming in and rewriting the law so that it undoes this prohibition on his participation in political life? And five minutes later, he's back in through the door. Excellent questions, Mr. Friedland. You should ask questions for a living. Let me tell you this. First of all, <laughs> is there any way for him to circumvent the Cologne? Uh, this, this moral turpitude is part of what we call the basic law of the government. So what we will have to do indeed is send, theoretically, an accolade of his to win over the Likud, then become prime minister, and then have a majority of 61 votes in the 120-seat Knesset to change the law. Can he do it? Theoretically, yes. Um, another thing that can happen that it's maybe more possible is for this trial to continue for years and for Netanyahu to get elected in the next election and change the law himself. There are all kinds of possibilities here, but still that moment in which Netanyahu leaves the stage, even if he tries through this emissary to change the law, I think is a much more complicated option for him. And what it means really, if he is considering, and he indeed is considering this seriously, it means that he is so worried, so concerned of the prospect of jail time at the end of the road that he's willing to say, I am giving up uh, my political career. As you said, for 79, for some people maybe is not that old, but I will at least tell you that my my uh, uh, bet will be that all the other players on the arena, seeing that he might come back, will, after six years and a half, bring forth elections again so that it will be longer than seven years. That I can tell you for sure. Yeah, there, there will still be fear of him, which mm -hmm. is, um, you know, enduring. I'm interested in um, the uh, many scenarios which I'm uh, conjuring up here, I know, but whether or not he might try, you could call it the Ariadne Derry move mm -hmm. or you could call it the Vladimir Putin move. Um, but as I understand it, Ariadne Derry, uh, the leader of the Shas party, did, was sent to jail mm -hmm. and nevertheless kept kind of remote long distance control of that political party by having a kind of surrogate who took his place while he was indisposed. That's 
a mech- I'm just picturing that manoeuvre with BB in jail like a Mr Big on the phone, or not in jail, doing his community service, but mm-hmm. on the phone to his patsy who does his bidding. But the other one I remember is Vladimir Putin when the uh, Russian basic law, the Russian constitution, prevented him carrying on as president. He just stepped aside, became prime minister, and had his puppet, Dmitry Medvedev, in, the, in place as a nominal president, but everyone knew uh, it was Putin still in charge. I, I know these are paranoid fantasies. I'm aware <laughs> of how delusional I'm sounding. I'm still waiting for you to say, and what if Netanyahu becomes a wizard and yeah. then he's in Hogwarts? Okay, look, I'll remember. No, I'm spot. sort of there. I'm, I'm kind of like imagining, you know, we've been talking about 80s and 90s films or 70s and 60s films. Um, you know, the fatal attraction denouement where Glenn Close, the audience, thinks she's gone, but she comes out of the bath carrying the knife. You know, I am one of the me- audience members who's still a bit frightened. Okay, no dead rabbits in this scenario at all. Um, First of all, as an Israeli, I feel the need to say Israel is not Russia. Okay, Israel has independent uh, judicial system, legal system, it has an independent court. This is not where we are at all. Uh, Ari Deri, actually, first of all, uh, yes, he went to prison. He had this moral turpitude clause uh, um, upon him. He returned when he was in his 50s. That's a little different than returning when you're 79 into the arena. And it took him, and he was actually, it took him a while to come back because while he was gone, Eli Shai took over Shah's party and had the ear of Ovadia Yosef, who was the spiritual leader of Shah's. It was very difficult for him to come back. He did eventually, but it isn't, it isn't easy. Look, we're still not in the stage where this is signed. And you have to say that there is this very strange consensus between left and right in this country against the deal. The left, of course, would want to see this whole trial playing out. And I should say some of them want to see Netanyahu behind bars. And the right that has been told, especially Netanyahu's loyalists, that have been told by him for many years that this is a fabricated case, right? And that this is a coup d'etat against a, a sitting prime minister. They don't understand the really elastic gymnastics that are in play here to make this uh, make sense. I love elastic gymnastics. Um, The idea of even the possibility that uh, Netanyahu could go to prison and you think about Ehud Ehud Olmert who went to prison, you think of Moshe Katsav, the president who went to prison. Either this is a wonderful advertisement for Israel as a nation in which nobody is above the law Mm -hmm. or it's a terrible message it says about the quality of Israel's political class that it's a kind of bunch of crooks who you know are there's a revolving door not between uh, the prime minister's residence and you know the lobbying industry like there might be in in Britain or America but a revolving door between the prime minister's office and a penitentiary <laughs> i mean it is quite something i i think you could take you know either either reading of this maybe both readings of this but it's it doesn't say much good about israel's recent leadership uh, echelon if you know, a high percentage of them have ended up um, either in jail or warding off jail. Well, you know, I know it doesn't look very good, but still, I think the fact that justice is being done is the most important thing. And I would still claim that most of the politicians in this country are actually honorable people. Um, But I also need to tell you that if, and I know that you're sort of holding on to this uh, thought that it won't happen, and it really is hard to believe that Netanyahu would step out of the political arena. I remind you, it was hard to believe eight months ago that Netanyahu won't be prime minister. So that I was couldn't the dramatic, believe that either, the dramatic, You still aren't believing. You're still kind of, you know, holding on to that. But, um, but that did happen. So um, I, I would also take the political ramifications of this to uh, 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 kind of a couple of steps forward and say, if Netanyahu indeed leaves 
and indeed in 90 days the Likud has to choose a new leader, what we're fast forwarding to is a complete shift in the political um, scene. Because remember, a lot of people who would sit with the Likud, like Gidon Saar or Benny Gantz even, wouldn't sit with Netanyahu because he had that uh, scarlet letter on his on his forehead, right? The I, not the A in this case, but the indicted scarlet letter. If you don't have Netanyahu, what's the problem to have a government with Anir Barkat at the head of the Likud, for example? What I'm leading you to, to think is that if indeed this happens, the first thing I would think is goodbye to Yair Lapid as being the next prime minister of Israel. If that happens, then this narrative of Yair Lapid as the great self-sacrificer you know, who, who who put his own ambitions and ego in a way second so that the, this anti-BB coalition could form and allowed, you know, in a kind of after you, Claude, way he let Naftali Bennett go first, only to then be thwarted and deny the prize himself. That's, you know, that's an, a narrative. By the way, I mean, it doesn't rule out the idea that he then fights an election and wins it. I mean, that True. could also, or emerges as the head of a new coalition. But I agree, it's so much harder without the toxic figure uh, there. And look, we have this in politics in several countries. You know, there's the, all the political dynamics in the United States are about who's not Trump. And we're seeing it a bit in the in a big political crisis playing out here in London mm-hmm. at the moment. All the politics is organised around, it's like planets around a sun. Uh, and Bibi has been that sun for so long. Uh, the notion of him being outside office would realign the whole solar system. So that is huge. We have some awards to give out. We should get on to those, I feel. And we're not making a habit of this, but I think it's you who is going to hand out our chutzpah. Indeed. And I I must tell you, Jonathan, that my chutzpah uh, nominee is someone who for many years I would probably put in the mensch column. So you understand that there is a downward journey here uh, to tell about. Um, and my the story, if you'll allow it, begins in 1997. American television airs what I would claim is the most groundbreaking feminist series and the most accurate and poignant um, description of really what it means to be a young woman in this world. The show was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It had a huge devoted um, following of a cult TV show and its creator had a huge following. That creator is Joss Whedon, who is heralded as this feminist icon. Uh, he went on to become even bigger in Hollywood. He, I think, wrote and directed a few of the Avengers um, um, films in the franchise. Now, sometime a few years ago, some stories began to trickle out of his, um, let's say, his his the way he treated actors and uh, writers, particularly women, uh, that he had a way of abusing them, really, of, of misogyny, of threats. The peak of these accusations came from Gal Gadot, Uh, A year ago, she said he threatened her and he threatened her career. And she got him basically booted off a movie that he was supposed to direct uh, with her. Now, why am I telling you this this long story? Since he has become this outcast this week, a piece came out in New York Magazine interviewing uh, Joss Whedon after a long time of silence. And I think if it's possible, he dig the hole even deeper for himself. And what he said, responding, he responded to many allegations, but what he said in response to Gal's allegations, I think is what, uh, what he deserves the Chutzpah Award this week for. He said this, English is not her first language, and I tend to be annoyingly flowery in my speech. Uh, to which she responded, um, I understood perfectly. <laughs> and to which I would respond, you know, douchebag is an international language. We all understand it. Why I'm telling you this whole story, Jonathan, is because 
You know, I realize that someone can be a great writer and a horrible human being. Like, I'm old enough to get that. But I'm just wondering if this man created such a wonderful feminist manifesto. Is the fact that he is actually a fake feminist, does it in any way taint the creation itself? There's a little interesting nuance there, because ordinarily there's this idea of talented writer, horrible human being. But in this case, it's not just that he was talented, it's specifically that it was a feminist manifesto. And therefore, that is a different question. Can some, a, a, a misogynist produce a feminist piece of work, which is different from can a douchebag produce <laughs> a beautiful piece of work? I think they're different questions. Yep. And the feminism of it is undermined, perhaps, um, yep. if the creator is a douche. Um <laughs> It's a very interesting question. Um, as always, we are able to turn pop culture into the deepest areas of philosophy, morality, and ethics. We told you it's two Jews on the news. Uh, we get very Jewish on these things. I think that's a, a very good um, choice. I'm going to nominate and be much more predictable uh, for Mensch. I think there can only be one candidate, and it is obviously Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker, leader of the community in Colleyville, Texas, who was obviously a, a very admired spiritual leader already, we knew that, but has really come across as something of a superhero this week, just for the sheer physical bravery. It turns out that he, as we've talked about, uh, resolved things by hurling a chair at the direction in the direction of the hostage taker. And so he and the other two remaining hostages were able to dash out. I mean, this is what you want from a leader. I mean, not only is he a moral figure, you know, a big progressive guy, and then he becomes this, you know, physical defender of his community, something out of, um, you know, Marvel or Avengers movie, uh, taking on the bad guy and rescuing himself and the other two. Uh, so I think there's no contest, uh, really, and I think he is our choice, or my nominee anyway, for Mensch of the Week. Agreed. No other competition this week, at least. Um, okay, we're winding up our program today. We are. We have to say our thank yous, as usual, in a Menchie fashion, to our uh, EP, Lior Friedman. We're saying thank you to Rom Atik, head of podcasts, to uh, Omer Primat, and to Rad Eshed for original music. Huge thanks to Richard Myron, and you will see me next week, Jonathan. Like I will, and in I will. No, I definitely want to. And in between, if you've enjoyed it, please do rate or review, and otherwise spread the love. And of course, you'll need to see you next week. See ya.